Welcome to Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we peer into the darkened corners of InfoSec and shine a light on the people who shape modern security landscape to find out why they came to be, where they are today, what motivates them, and what keeps them up at night. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by a poacher turned gamekeeper, Brett Johnson, a man who once appeared on the United States Most Wanted list before being captured and convicted of 39 felonies, only to later escape captivity. Brett is also known as the original internet godfather and was later captured again, and after serving his time, became one of the good guys, serving as a leading authority on the criminal world he left behind through his work as a leading security consultant and public speaker. So Brett, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And where are you joining us from today? I am from, I'm out of Birmingham, Alabama. So, uh, yeah, Birmingham, deep south. You know, they the weather here, hot, humid, racist. That's Birmingham. Actually, it's not, I, I can't lie, it is that bad sometimes. It's a city of the have and have nots. Well, starting of the, the your journey in Southern America, I believe you originally grew up in East Kentucky, is that right? I did. I am a, uh, I'm a Southern boy, so I'm from uh, Hazard, Kentucky, right in the heart of coal country. Um, my dad, I, I, did, I, wasn't, I didn't spend all my life in Hazard or in Eastern Kentucky. My dad was a, uh, was a military guy. He was a captain in the U.S. Army, helicopter pilot. So I, I traveled the world as a child until my father, um, he was forced out of the military. They were downsizing, and they, they gave him the option. You know, you can no longer be an officer. We'll boot you down to unenlisted. And he was like, no, I think I'll go be a coal miner. So we moved at, we moved back to uh, Eastern Kentucky, and I was, uh, geez, I was probably seven, eight years old when that happened. My, uh, I guess we need to dive into my life of crime, right? Uh, well, this is it. My my vision when I I've never been to Eastern Kentucky, but my vision is like you say, coal, bourbon whiskey, rugged landscape, and rugged people who are just working hard to make some money and get on in life. So I'm curious how your childhood in East Kentucky set you on the path to later become. Described as the internet godfather. Well, I mean, it's so Eastern Kentucky. There's this there's this mentality that, um, you know, you've if if something's going to be done, you've got to do it yourself. Okay, there's uh, yeah. you know for Eastern Kentucky that that part of the country in the United States, we're used to the government coming through every few years and telling us how bad we've got it and how poor we are and how they're going to help us. And typically that never happens. The helping us means that they're going to line their pockets with something, uh, you know, the mineral rights for the country or for that area or something like that. Um, so we're used to that. And we're used to, you know, if you're if anything is going to happen, you've got to get off your ass and you've got to do it yourself. And I guess that that, that kind of leads into it. You know, I was... Um, my dad, when when we were in the when my dad was in the army, we had it pretty good. We did. Uh, I mean, he made a good living. He was well respected. Uh, we traveled the the world and got to see things that most people will never see. So I was very fortunate with that, and I it it helped instill in me a world a worldview and a respect for other people that a lot of people simply don't have or don't have the opportunity to acquire. The problem is, is that um, when my mom, and I don't want to, I'm, I'm adamant about this. I talk about this frequently. Just because someone has a toxic parent or a criminal parent or something like that, that doesn't mean that you have to grow up and be that same type of individual. You know, you make a choice. As a child, you can't help that. But when you become an adult, you have the, the opportunity to decide what your fate, what your life is going to be. 
and I made bad decisions. So, you know, I grew up in an environment where my mom was a very abusive parent, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. She was very negligent. She used to leave me and my sister home for days at a time. She used to bring men home in front of my father. My father would sit there and cry and beg her not to do it. She would do it anyway. That was my mom. But it was, it was even worse than that. My mom was also a fraudster. This is a woman who, um, at one point, she steals a Caterpillar D9 bulldozer. This thing weighs 118,000 pounds. She steals one of these things. At another point, she takes a slip and phone, a convenience store. We had a neighbor she acted as a pimp for. That's my mom and my dad. My dad was a, was a good man. He is a good man. He's a quiet man. But he was the guy that, you know, you know if you've never been in an abusive relationship, you're kind of like that frog that's in the hot water. You don't know it's boiling until it's too late. And I think my dad was was kind of like that. You know, he had never been in any type of toxic relationship or been abused or anything like that. So he got to see what that was like. And and my dad's issue was is he he loved my mom. He didn't want her to leave. He was scared of her leaving. So he became the enabler. If she wanted to abuse someone, he wouldn't stop that. If she wanted to commit a crime and she was a criminal too. He would co-sign off on it. He would, yeah, what can I do to help? So um, that that's the type of environment that I that I grew up in. You know, it, it's, um, I don't think a lot of people really, um, I talk about that, but I don't think that unless you've lived in that type of environment, I don't think that you really appreciate it or can understand it. You know, when I start talking about some of the stories, like my mom at one point, she, uh, she tells me and my sister, I was probably eight or nine, my sister Denise, a year younger. She tells us that she has sold her soul to Satan so that we could have a good life. But we have to prove that we're worthy. So we take turns playing this game where we keep eye contact with my, with our mom and she lets Satan come out through her eyes and we're supposed to think happy Jesus thoughts to keep from being possessed. And, and this thing goes on for hours, hours. You know, I, I tell stories like that and to me, when I start verbalizing that, that minimizes it. It's like, well, is it, is it really that serious? Yeah, shit, yeah, it's that serious. Because that was not just one instant. This was stuff that happened all the time. So that's the environment I grew up in. Uh, what happens is my, where my crimes begin, we were in Panama City, Florida. The way, we, the way we got down to Panama City, my dad... He typically never came up with any criminal ideas in his life. He comes up with two that I remember. And one of them was he was going to fly drugs back and forth across the Mexican border. That fell apart when the guy who was going to bring him on decides to have a shootout with law enforcement and gets his ass killed. So that ended that one. But the second one was my dad was an avid watcher of 60 Minutes. So there was a segment on where they've, they're talking about the drug trade in Miami and they're showing the, you know, the the tables of cash, the pallets of cocaine, and my dad's locked into it watching it, and he, he gets through watching this 20-minute segment. He looks over at my mom, and he's like, I think I need to go down and be a police officer in Miami. And my mom was like, yeah, I think you do. And his idea was, well, I could be a cop. I'll come across one of these big drug trades. I'll let them keep the drugs. I'll keep the cash, and we'll have it made. And here I am. By, the, by this point, I'm like nine, and I'm like, they'll shoot you. And he's like, oh, no, they'd never do that. So he goes down, and, of course, that falls apart, and, and they're broke by that point. And, the, and we ended up in Panama City, Florida, which is like the spring break capital of the United States. 
So we ended up there and we were there for a couple of uh, well, for a year, maybe a little bit longer than a year until my mom leaves my dad. And the way my crime began, life of crime begins, my mom leaves my dad. She moves me and my sister up to Hazard, Kentucky. We were in a, uh, in an apartment underneath my grandparents. My grandparents didn't want anything to do with us. And my mom would leave me and Denise home for days at a time. And, and I was a kid that would post up at the windows, you know, see if mom was coming back. Sometimes I'd walk outside, see if, she, see if she's driving down the street. Denise, nine years old, just the kid who was angry, just angry. And um, so we didn't have any food in the house. Denise walks in one day and she's got a pack of pork chops. And I'm like, where'd you get that? And she's like, I stole it. And... Uh, I'm like, show me how you did that. So she takes me and she shows me how she steals food. And I'm like, hell, that's the best idea I've seen yet. Let's do that. So we start stealing food. And across the way, there's a Kmart over there. And Kmart's got a lot more than food. So we start taking, uh, you know, games and toys and jewelry and music and stuff like that. Mom comes home and she sees everything that's been stolen, asks where it came from. I stand up. We, we found it. She's like, no, you didn't find that. Denise, nine years old. Nine years old, she stands up, we stole it. And uh, my mom looks at my sister, show me how you did that. And she starts running us as little shoplifters. And uh, not only that, but she goes and gets her mom to join us as well. I mean, this is the family I grew up in. And that's where my life of crime begins. And you were talking about that environment of Eastern Kentucky. The male is expected to stand up to do what needs to, quote, do what needs to be done. It's the male's job to do that. That's part of that Eastern Kentucky mindset. So as we were growing up, my sister did not get involved in those crimes because she was a girl. She wasn't expected to do that, but I was expected to do that. So I grew up knowing how to do all kinds of fraud because it wasn't just my mom. It was every single person on that side of the family. So I grew up knowing how to do charity fraud, insurance fraud, so faking accidents, faking stolen cars, breaking and entering, drug trafficking, uh, forging documents. Knew how to do all that stuff by the time I enter into this life of cybercrime that I'm so notorious for now. That's obviously a lot to unpack there, but do you think that growing up in an environment like that, you know, uh, physically, mentally abusive, do you think that gave you the skills to be able to read people better, to be able to be better at theft and fraud and these activities you went on to do? Sure. So one of the one of the things that you find out about cybercrime is that cybercrime is not successful without social engineering. You have to be able to con someone. To, you have to be a good liar, a good manipulator. Um, a lot of the more experienced, self-included, a lot of the more experienced criminals that are out there online, we become good social engineers as children in order to survive that adult environment. You're absolutely right. You know, the tools uh, in order to navigate the adults in my circle when I was a child to survive, I had to know what they were thinking and I had to learn how to gauge that quickly and then how to manipulate them. I had to know what their triggers were in order to survive. And then later on, I chose to use those tools to victimize other people. That, that's a very common thing to do that. Um, and that, that's exactly what happened. I, I want to make it clear though that you know, it, it's, it was my choice to do that. For example, my sister had the exact same upbringing that I did. And other than shoplifting, just that one experience, she doesn't go off and break the law. She goes off to be a, a good parent, a teacher, just a real, really good citizen overall. I'm the guy who didn't do that. I chose, when I became an adult, 
I made the conscious decision to commit crime, to victimize other people. And I think it's important that, that people understand that, that just because you have a shitty childhood, just because your parents do this, that, and the other, that doesn't mean that you have to do that. You, you have the ability to choose not to do that, to choose a different path for yourself. I was just the guy who took the easy way out of that. And you mentioned that your, your dad had got inspiration from seeing a television show and thought being a policeman in Miami was a good idea. I believe you got some inspiration from Bill Riley around Beanie Babies, which started you in kind of your early cybercrime. Yeah, so, so you know, Bill O'Reilly, before he got his ass in trouble over on Fox News for the sexual predator stuff, he, uh, he used to host Inside Edition. It was a 30-minute TV news tabloid show back in the mid to late 90s. And here I am. So I, I faked a car accident to get the insurance money to get married. And, um, you know, I, I'm the guy, I'm, I'm a bit of a control freak. And not only that, but I get the worst parts from my mom and my dad. And my dad, I get that fear of the people that I love leaving. So, and I've never been, I, I've always been sucked. I've always sucked at, uh, at sh being able to show love in a healthy way and, and being healthy in a relationship. So got married and I told my wife, I was like, hey, don't you worry about working. I got it. Uh, don't worry about cooking and cleaning. I got that too. So here I am. I've got a, a, you know, an 18-hour class load, a 60-hour-a-week job, trying to do all the cooking, cleaning. Can't do all that. Something had to give. What gave was the job. Well, with that proclivity toward fraud I've already got. Didn't know what I was going to do. I was going. I was. I was in Lexington, Kentucky, doing all these little scams, you know, street scams and everything else, and wasn't doing really well. Found the internet, liked that. Found eBay, liked that even more. Figured there had to be some way to make money on eBay. Didn't know how until one night Bill O'Reilly told me how. They were doing a show on Inside Edition about Beanie Babies. You know, the the little animals, the high dollar collectibles, mid to late nineties, and the one they were profiling was called Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant, selling for $1,500 on eBay. And I'm sitting there watching like, $1,500? Hell, I need to find me a peanut. So I skip class the next day, go around all the shops looking for this little animal. Takes me about three hours to figure out, idiot, he's not in the shops. He's on eBay for $1,500. But they did have these little gray Beanie Baby elephants for $8. So... You buy a gray Beanie Baby Elephant for $8. Stop by another shop on the way home, pick up a pack of blue dye, go home, try to dye the little guy. Turns out they're made out of polyester. They don't hold dye very well. You get them out of the bath, they look like they've got the mange. But the thing is, is I ripped a lady off, $1,500. I found a picture of a real one online. I posted it. She thought I had the real thing. She wins the bid. As soon as she wins the bid, that's when this social engineering kicks in. I don't want to be on the defensive. I want her on the defensive. I want her responding to me. So I send her a message. Hey, lady, congratulations, you win the bid. By the way, we've, we've never done any business before. I don't even know if I can trust you. What I need you to do, go down to the United States Postal Ser Service, pick up a couple of money orders totaling $1,500. They're issued by the United States government. They protect you. They protect me. You send those to me. When I get them, I will send you your animal. She believed that. She sends me the money orders. I get them, cash them out. I send her this creature in the mail. Immediately get a phone call. This is not what I ordered. My response, lady, you ordered a blue elephant. I sent you a blue-ish elephant. And right there, that, that small story right there 
is kind of a microcosm for the way most cybercrimes, most scams and hustles work. First of all, you learn the first lesson of cybercrime. And that lesson is, if you delay a victim long enough, you just keep putting them off. A lot of them, they get exasperated, they throw their hands in the air, they walk away, and guess what? They don't report anything to law enforcement. They eat it. So that's the first lesson of cybercrime. And that's a lesson that most online fraudsters learn pretty quickly. The next thing you find out is that that story itself is a microcosm of the way that most scams and frauds work. If you think about it, as a scammer, as a fraudster, as a cyber criminal, in order for me to defraud you as an organization or a person, I have to establish a degree of trust with that potential victim. If I can't get that potential victim to trust me, I can't get them to give me information, access, data, or cash. So how do I do that? Well, fortunately, online, Trust is established through a combination of tools, technology, and then social engineering. Technology, we inherently trust that tech we have. We trust our hardware, the cell phones, laptops, desktops. We trust the websites we go to. We trust like the dating sites to vet the other members so that they're not scammers. We trust eBay that they're not going to sell some sort of counterfeit good or Amazon's going to deliver what we're buying. We trust these things. What we don't understand is that scammers use a variety of tools to manipulate that technology. They use spoofed phone calls. So you don't see the phone number they're calling from. You see the phone number of the postal service or your financial institution, someplace like that. They use SOX 5 proxies so that they may be located in Ghana, Nigeria, someplace like that, but they can make it look like they're in London or Florida or wherever they want to make it look like. That tends to lay a base level of trust. Once that base level is laid, we see how good of a con man or a liar or a social engineer that person is in manipulating you into giving up information, access, data, or cash. And what makes it even easier is that that potential victim is often wanting something. In this case, my victim was wanting a, an elephant, but it can be a PlayStation 5. It can be uh, a camera, a laptop. It can be friendship, romance, what have you. They're desiring something. And that desire makes it easier for a scammer, a criminal, to come in and develop trust or establish trust with that potential victim. With the, with the end result being, as a scammer, I want my, my victim to react emotionally, not logically, not rationally. So the, the desire of the victim, the way that trust is established online, things like that makes cybercrime very profitable and very successful a lot of the time. Yeah, I always find it fascinating how you can get people into the trap, the sort of sunken cost fallacy of, I've sent this person a bit of money. It hasn't quite worked out what I was expecting. Then the person asks for a bit more money to do the thing. And people will send that bit more money because they've got a level of trust. They feel like they've already sent some money. So they've kind of already bought into it. And you know, you'd think all the logic and all your senses would be saying, just stop at that point. But that can often be, they're committed to it then. The, the sunken cost fallacy, that's, that's a, that's, that is the term. And, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's not just what you said, but it's also, I've, I've spoken and I've, I deal with a lot of victims these days. Typically, you'll see, you'll have somebody saying a romance scam where initially they think that the person on the other end of the line is a scammer. They just want money. And they're right. That's exactly what it is. But they continue to talk to this individual. And over time, the individual establishes trust with that person. And typically the way that works, it's a long-term scam and you, you deny the offer. So the scammer uh, says they have a problem, maybe a child in the hospital or what have you, knowing that the potential victim 
even though the potential victim is thinking it may be a scam, the potential victim is going to say something along the lines of, is there anything that I can do to help? Well, at that point, a smart scammer refuses the offer. I'm going to deny that offer. I'm going to say, no, 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 I don't, we don't even know that each other that well. We've not met. I'll handle this. I'm denying the offer because that actually builds more trust with that potential victim. The potential victim is thinking, well, if it was really about money, they would have taken me up. They would have said, yeah, I need money, but they didn't. So it can't be about money. They must like me. That establishes that trust at that point. But as a scammer, I know that that offer is going to come again. And the next time that offer comes, I'm going to accept that offer. All right. So that's, that's a lot of the way this actually works. But on that sunken cost, what you see is a scam. It starts with the criminal on one end of the fence and the victim on the other side of the fence. And the idea is to get that victim over on your side of the fence. And society actually helps facilitate that. If you think about it, we are very good about blaming victims for the crimes which are perpetrated upon them. And in cyber, we've got a lot of lines that we say, why would you click on that link? Why would you send money to someone you don't know? Who would ever believe in gift cards? So we tend to blame the victim. Victims know that. And, and what happens is, is that victim, once they start sending money to that scammer, at some point, a lot of them start thinking, well, it could be a scam. But guess what? They don't have anyone that they could rely on at all because they're scared of being judged. They're scared of being shamed. So they, they, that support group of friends, family members, associates that they've typically had, they shut them off out of fear of judgment. So the only person that they're able to talk to and communicate with is the scammer. And that, that they, they enter into that type of echo chamber. And that's where that lost cost fallacy comes in. They start to think, well, you know, I've already sent this much money just a little while longer, it's, it's got to work out. It's got to work out just fine. And the truth is it never works out. I've, I've talked to, uh, I know one victim, she ends up sending $1.1 million to one of these scammers. She gets to the point that she, she goes through all of her money and she borrows $200,000 from her father to send to the scammer as well. He, he completely bankrupts her. Another one, um, she, she, she's on a fixed income and she loses her home to a scammer. So it doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. Scammers are looking to steal every single thing that you've got. Of course. And it's sometimes it's only when those family members cut people off that they really, you know, uncover the, the depth of it. Absolutely. So where did you go next then? So you, you started selling be Beanie Babies and then I think you sort of then accelerate through selling other things on eBay and eventually get into identity and, and some sort of tax fraud. Is that right? So, so what happens is, is, is you're right, I start with eBay fraud, and eBay fraud leads into PayPal fraud because PayPal had started at around the same time, and there was no security in place at either, at either organization or company. So you, I was able to eat those people alive. It gets to where I'm selling pirated software. Pirated software led, leads into uh, mod chips, soldering, soldering chips onto circuit boards so you can play pirated games or watch pay-per-view movies. And then finally, programming those small satellite dish systems like the RCA systems. You can pull the access card out of it, program it, turn on all the channels. Started doing that, making a lot of money, and then ended up ripping a lot of people off because I was like, who are they going to complain to? I don't have to deliver any product, and I just keep the money. So because I was stealing so much money, I got worried about how much was coming in and thought the best thing that I could do in order to avoid money laundering charges was to get a fake driver's license, use that to open up a bank account, launder the money through the account, pull the funds out at an ATM. 
had no idea where to get a fake driver's license. So I got online, started to look around, thought I found a guy, sent him $200, sent him my picture, and he rips me off. And uh, I got I got really mad. I got pissed off because it, it's no fun being a victim. So uh, um, the end result was this thing called Shadow Crew. And Shadow Crew, be, uh, to understand cybercrime, you have to understand there are three necessities to successfully committing online crime. You have to gather data. That's the stolen PII, that's the logins, that's the uh, passwords, credit card numbers. You have to gather that data and any tools that are needed. So those spoof phone calls that I talked about are SOX5 proxies. So you gather data, then you commit a crime, and then finally you cash that crime out. Because if you don't put cash in pocket at the end of the day, you're useless. The problem is, is that those three necessities, one single criminal really can't do all three. They can do one, sometimes two, but being good at all three, not going to happen. So you have to network with other criminals who are good in areas where you are not. Now, the problem with that is before Shadow Crew, the only avenue you had to do that was this thing called IRC, Internet Relay Chat, this rolling chat board where you had no idea who you were talking to, if you could trust that individual, if they had a product or service, if they had it, if it worked, or if they were just going to rip you off because everyone in those channels were criminals. So Shadow Crew gave a trust mechanism that criminals could use. Now, because of Shadow Crew, you have this large communication channel in a forum-type structure where individuals from different time zones could reference conversations days, weeks, months old. They could take part in those conversations, learn from those conversations. You had uh, the ability of looking at someone's screen name and just by looking at the screen name, you could know the skill level of that person, if you could trust that person, what the history of that person was. We had vouching systems in place, review systems in place, escrow systems in place, all with the singular purpose of establishing trust with one criminal and another when they didn't know what each other looked like, didn't know each other's real name, and would never meet one another. So that's, what, that's the primary accomplishment, if you want to call it that, of Shadow Crew. What Shadow Crew also was, was the first darknet market of its type. It was the first eBay of criminal goods and services. So, of course, Shadow Crew ran afoul of the law. We made the front cover of Forbes August of 2004. Headline, Who's Stealing Your Identity? October 26, 2004, the United States Secret Service arrested 33 people, six countries, six hours. I'm the only guy publicly mentioned as getting away. They pick me up four months later, and they give me a job. And I'm the guy that continues to break the law from inside Secret Service offices for the next 10 months until they find out about it. I go on a cross-country crime spree, steal $600,000 in four months, make the United States most wanted list, go to Disney World, get arrested, sent to prison, escape from prison, get arrested again, and finally serve out my time. Yeah, it's a hell of a story. Okay, so first question off that is why have Netflix not made a documentary, a movie about this yet? So it turns out that the way media is today, and we I've been in talks with uh, with everyone from the guy who produces NCIS to um, Netflix people to Hulu people. I'm on some documentaries on Hulu and Netflix right now, but um, the the issue is is that the story is very complicated. And they typically want some form of media to already exist. So the book 
is coming out next year. My uh, my literary agent is the same guy who did The Irishman, October Sky, stuff like that. Uh, the book is due out next year, and we expect it to uh, to be optioned at that point when it's out. But it's um, you know, we, I've I've just hit upon just a few things. I mean, it's a it's a very it's a very complicated story at the end of the day. Yeah. So let, let's unpick some of that, actually, then. So Shadow Crew, this great, you know, the, the sort of foundation that the dark web markets are built on today, effectively. How did you go from being conned out of a driving license to then creating that that service? So it, it turns out if you build it, they will come. And, and what happens is, is, of course, I get scammed looking for a fake driver's license. And I'm mad, but I still need that driver's license. Now, honestly, I knew street scams, and I knew eBay fraud and PayPal fraud. I knew how to do that. I didn't understand a lot about cybercrime, cybersecurity at all, but I knew I needed this fake driver's license. So what I do is I start, I keep looking around because I still need it until I find this, this website called Counterfeit Library. <clears throat> and Counterfeit Library, what they dealt with, they were a degree mill. They dealt with fake degrees and certificates. They had a forum on there that was defunct. No one was using it. Well, other than IRC, the only website that dealt with anything illicit that I was interested in was Counterfeit Library. So I go in and I start just complaining on the forum. That's it. Just start complaining. Well, over time, over the next few weeks, I actually become friends with the people who own Counterfeit Library. And they, they, they give me permission. They're like, hey, you handle the forum. Well, while I'm there, two other individuals start coming on there, too, and we all start kind of buddying up. And one of, one goes by the screen name of Mr. X. He was out of Los Angeles. The other one went by the screen name of Beelzebub. He was out of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Now, I didn't know anything except for eBay fraud, PayPal fraud, street scams. But I'm complaining about this driver's license. So one day, Beelzebub gets me on ICQ, this instant messaging app. And he sends me a message. He's like, hey, Gollum, I went by the screen name of Gollum Fun. He's like, hey, Gollum, I, I can make you a driver's license. And I was like, dude, make me a driver's license. And he's like, no, I'm going to charge you for it. And I'm like, yeah, like hell you are. And he's like, no, I'm going to charge you for it because if you're going to be in this business, you have to learn to trust someone at some point. And I'm like, okay. Well, I was friends with the people who owned the website. And I was like, i tell you what. I'll go ahead and I'll send you $200. That way, when you rip me off, I can have you booted off this site and I don't have to see you anymore. And he was like, bet. I was like, okay. So I sent him $200, sent him my picture. Two weeks later, I get this fake driver's license in the mail in the name of Stephen Schwecky. Turns out that he was a real guy and all the data on the driver's license was real data except my face was on it. He worked for a company called ADP Payroll. So... Um, I use that drive. I think it's the prettiest thing in the world. So I start using it to open up bank accounts, cash fraudulent checks, open up drop addresses, everything else. Well, what happens is, is I had no real skill in that arena whatsoever. Beelzebub knew how to make driver's licenses. Mr. X made a very competent social security card. So Beelzebub wanted to sell driver's licenses. Mr. X was like, well, hell, if he can sell driver's licenses, I can sell social security cards. So the idea came, since those two individuals were sellers, they couldn't really offer a non-biased review. So I would become the reviewer. It would allow me to look at every product and service that came into that environment, evaluate that, learn how they were made, learn how to use them at the same time. 
So that was my primary function starting out, and it became this field of dreams for criminal activity. If you build it, they will come, and they did because there was really no place else that was offering an environment where you could find trust. So, and it, it became that, and, and I've lived by that. I, if I gave a, re, a review of a product or service, that review meant that I stood behind that. If the seller did not fulfill the contract, you know, if the seller was advertising bank accounts and then didn't deliver it, it was on me to make that whole on the customer side. And I did that, and that, that built that website up until finally we transitioned over to Shadow Crew. Now, in that transition, right as that transition is happening, there's this individual by the name of Dmitry Golubov. He's a Ukrainian. He was a spammer, a kid. He was like 18, 19 at the time. So he was a spammer, and he was getting all these credit card details. Well, he knew what we were doing with Counterfeit Library, and he had this idea, and his idea was, I wonder if people would buy stolen credit card details. Well, it turns out they will. So he picks up the phone. He calls his buddies. They call their buddies. They have a physical conference, an in-person conference in Odessa. 150 of these Ukrainian cyber criminals show up, and they launch the idea or the website, counterfeit, or not counterfeit, but Carter Planet. Carter Planet is the genesis of all modern credit card theft that we know today, that we see today. That's where it starts. The problem that he had, remember, remember I was talking about those three necessities of cybercrime. You have to gather data, you have to commit a crime, but then you got to cash it out. Well, the Ukrainians, they had the data. They had all the credit card information on the planet. Committing the crime, there was really not much security around back then. So it was easy enough to, to do credit card fraud. The problem they had was in cashing it out. That part of the world that they lived in, there had been so much fraud that the card companies had shut down every card there. Even if you were the legitimate card holder, you couldn't cash those cards out. So they had to rely on people outside of area to be money mules. So one day, Dmitry Golubov comes and partners with Brett Johnson over on Counterfeit Library. About the same time we transition over to Shadow Crew, Shadow Crew becomes a credit theft site, basically identity theft, credit theft, and it continues from there. And that's where, you know, I said that trust mechanism. That trust mechanism was solidified with Shadow Crew. With Counterfeit Library, every single business transaction went through my hands. I knew everything that was going on. No one did anything without my approval. With Shadow Crew, we automated that. We, we By that point in time, I had built and established what a trust mechanism in a criminal environment should look like. We implemented it, and it, worked, it was so successful that that same type of trust mechanism is still in use today in criminal environments. I mean, it's it's... It's 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 a first. It's nothing to be proud of, but it kind of is. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, these things exist, and you know, there's there's a thriving market built off the back of that today. You see in the in the modern darknet ecosystem. It's very hard to combat that as well. Very hard to combat it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, um, and obviously, you know, like you said, perhaps when you were doing it, there weren't as many of the security challenges around. Right. You know, on the passing the card details, but also putting a website up, maybe keeping your information secure. It, it wasn't quite as, you know, in-depth as the, the sites need to be today. Right. One of the things that interested me was you said, if you build it, they will come. So you had people coming with all sorts of different skill sets in, in the criminal arena. Was there anything you did to draw the line and say, these are things that we don't get involved in? Yeah, the, uh, the rules that we had, um, 
I was, so what happens is, is over the space of about 14 months, Beelzebub, he was a marijuana grower. So he goes back to growing pot. Um, Mr. X, he gets picked up in Las Vegas cashing out. And so he is off site as well. So I become the de facto head of that environment. And over time, I've become the head of it. Um, the rules that I had in place is that we don't deal in any type of counterfeit currency because I didn't want the United States Secret Service on our case. So that was one of the rules. The other rule we had, um, I'm very anti-drug, so I was like, we're not dealing with any type of drugs. And then finally, we don't do any type of child porn. Um, everything else was fair game. We dealt in weapons, we dealt in passports, we dealt in everything across the board. And at, at the end of the day, we also dealt in counterfeit currency. And toward the end of Shadow Crew, we, we dealt in drugs as well. We never dealt in child pornography, but we, we dealt in ecstasy. We dealt in the opiates, you know, Oxycontin, uh, marijuana, stuff like that as well. So uh, that we were, you know, we dealt in everything we possibly could that dealt profit. Okay. And when you look at the, the modern dark websites and the marketplaces that are operating today, and, you know, we sometimes see the headlines hit when Silk Road or something gets shut down. What do you think the model they're operating on? Has it evolved significantly? Are they basically using exactly the same thing, just with some more anonymized hosting? The uh, So the trust mechanism is the same. More or less, it is the same. It's, it's, it's almost completely unchanged. Uh, what has changed with the trust mechanism is the blockchain. So because of the blockchain, you can have marketplaces now where the escrow is part of the marketplace instead of it being some sort of outside entity or outside individual. So that that helps the trust mechanism there. Um, other than that, the, the trust mechanism is the same. As far as the environments themselves, toward the, toward the tail end of Shadow Crew is where we saw drugs start to enter in. Now, drugs are, an, are just an inherent part of cybercrime communities. If you have yeah. a marketplace and you want that marketplace to just deal in financial cybercrime, you're not going to make the money that you would if you allowed drug trafficking in there as well. So drugs have a place in that. The problem also becomes, though, because of the drug environment and because of those players that are coming from drug trafficking, now you have violence as being inherent in the system, to quote Monty Python. So you, you, you've got violence that's there as well. We never really saw violence in the Shadow Crew type systems until the last days. And that, that was introduced by the Ukrainians at that point. Now you have violence. And if you think about it, you know, some of these sentences, some of the prison sentences for people who are caught, uh, Ross Ulbrich gets two life sentences plus 40 years. So you're, you're looking potentially at life in prison. And the question becomes, what would you do in order not to serve a life sentence in prison? Would you result, resort to violence? And the answer is, yes, most people would. Absolutely they would, but it goes a little bit further than that. Because you can't rely, you're getting people that rip you off, that steal from you. You can't call the police on those people. So you have to take that type of action into your own hands. So you've got violence that's, that's throughout the system now, and it becomes very dangerous. Not only that, but you've got organized crime elements. You've got you know, you've got the Ukrainian mob, you've got the cartels that are selling there, you've got all these other elements that are in there. You've got nation state players that come in there, you've got terrorists that come in there. So you've got all these different areas where violence is now inherent and it's it's absolutely there as well. So that's, those are a lot of the differences that, that happen. And then if we fast forward a little bit, so Shadow Crew gets shut down, 
someone's arrested, there's an informant. You disappear for a little while and then get picked up in Disneyland. I believe they were they were Disney World, cell phone. Yeah. Disney World, sorry, Disney World. So they were they were tracking your cell phone, what we now sort of think of as a, a stingray device used to to track you down there. They pull you in and they give you an offer of working for them. So what what's the offer on the table there? What do they want you to do for them? So uh, it, it's a little convoluted there. The uh, because I get picked up a few times. Uh, my first arrest was not I, I was not identified with with a triggerfish. Back then it was called triggerfish. Today it's stingray. Uh, the first arrest was just good old-fashioned law enforcement. I was arrested um, at a uh, controlled uh, delivery in Charleston, South Carolina. The FBI got me within 45 minutes of Secret Service. They come in, take over the case. Um, they let me sit in a county jail for about 10 days. Two of them fly down to South Carolina from New Jersey. They pull me out of a cell. They look at me and they say, hey, we got your laptop. And I'm like, yeah, you got anything on your laptop? Yep, you're going to be charged for it. Yeah, I figured. And then they ask me the question. Is there anything that you can do for us? Well, I was arrested three weeks before I was supposed to be married. And that was the most important thing in the world to me. So uh, my exact words were, hey, you let me get back with this girl. I will do whatever you want me to do. So they, they told me, hey, we're going to let you sit here for three. We're going to get you out. But they let me sit there for three months to get a taste of it. They popped me out after three months. And I start breaking the law the exact same night they got me out of jail. Um, that continued for the next 10 months within Secret Service offices. I was actually breaking the law with Secret Service agents in the same room as me. Um, they found out about it after 10 months. I take off on a cross-country crime spree, steal $600,000 in four months. I was in Las Vegas, Nevada the night before I'd stolen $160,000 out of ATMs. Woke up the next morning, signed on to cartersmarket.com, and I was United States Most Wanted at that point. And that's when I go to Disney World. And they tracked me down using a uh, trigger fish at that point. Uh, these days it's called Stingray, but back then it was trigger fish. Okay. And so that that working, well, you know, they've got you there. You said you'll do anything. You just want to be with your girl. They've got you in this office. You're committing fraud. Was it just that you you just didn't want to stop? Was it that they weren't offering you enough money? A combination of the two. What was the, the fact there? Or was it just because you could? Well, uh, I think it's a combination. There, there's several different factors at play there. Um, certainly, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance. You know that um, uh, you know it's over. May as well go ahead and do it. So, uh, and I can do this, and I can get away with it. So there, there was that that was in play. There was the um, the feelings of being lost and hopeless that certainly led into a lot of the cognitive dissonance on my end. Um, any number of factors there. They, at the end of the day, it was it was just a really bad choice because I was given the opportunity to avoid prison, and I chose to try to break into prison. So, uh, yeah, it just just a lot of uh, a lot of bad choices based on uh, faulty thinking is what I would say. And and then you know with that prison system with the penal systems you get into it, one of the things you often see people talk about is that the cyclical nature. Like you, you know you go in. It's about punishment. It's not about actually reforming you. It's not about changing anything. You then come out and actually that the the prison sentence, the criminal record, or in your case, someone who's made a living using technology comes out of prison and then is told they can't use technology for, you know, reasons. Do you think that locks you into that locked you into a cycle there? Did they set you up to fail through that process? I think that the the prison systems, at least in the United States, they are not equipped whatsoever to rehabilitate anyone. And, and let's be honest, there, there are more U.S. prisoners 
and, and than any place else in the world. As there's more incarcerated people in the United States than any other country. Those incarcerated people, you enter in whatever tools you enter into prison with, are the exact tools you leave prison with. And there's there's really no rehabilitation whatsoever. There's no effort to re, to to rehabilitate you either. It's, it's just simply, hey, we're going to get you off the street, and you're not going to be able to victimize anyone. And if you're fortunate, maybe maybe you are able to find some rehabilitation while you're inside. Now, I was very fortunate. Uh, the first thing that happens to me is uh, my sister had disowned me, not because I was a criminal, but because I was engaged to this girl, and my sister did not like that. So she disowns me, and Denise uh, was the only real family member I had. She was the only one I really cared about, and uh, Denise doesn't talk to me for a year while all this stuff is going on, and she doesn't talk to me until I escape from prison and then get caught. And then she, uh, she, my dad tells her, you know, your, your brother says he loves you. And Denise drives seven and a half hours pregnant to come and see me for 10 minutes, to tell me she loves me. And that's really the first big turnaround for me. It took me two and a half years behind the fence, behind bars to realize that the only person that put me in prison was me. I didn't commit crime for my sister or for my family or my wife or my stripper girlfriend. I committed crime because I chose to. So that was one of the big benefits of being in prison. A lot of people, at about, especially in federal prison, you get two to three years in and you either accept responsibility that, hey, you're the reason that you're here, or you just get angry and blame it on everyone else. And I was, I was very fortunate that I was able to accept that responsibility. The other really beneficial thing that happened is I told a lie while I was in prison. Big, big surprise there. And, and the lie that I told is I said that I was on drugs, that I used drugs. Because if, if you get in the drug program in prison, you get a, a year off of your sent, sentence. So I, I made this lie up that I was a cocaine addict and an alcoholic, and I got the drug program. Well, it turns out that that drug program was not about drug addiction at all. It was this thing called CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, this nine-month intensive therapy that it teaches you that your thoughts determine your feelings, your feelings determine your actions. So if you change your thought process, at the end of the day, your actions will ultimately change from there. And that had a just a profound effect on me. I quote that program to this to this day. I fully believe in that. Um, I think that those two things really laid the foundation for me being able to to change my life. But it didn't really end there. You see, I, when I got out of prison, you alluded to that a, a couple of minutes ago. I got out of prison. I wasn't allowed to touch anything technical whatsoever. I wasn't allowed computer access. Now, I had job offers. I had job offers from the No Before Fishing Company. I had job offers from Deloitte, from a couple of payment processors. Couldn't take them. Got to where I was trying to apply for fast food like McDonald's. Well, no, that's that cash register is a computer. You can't work there. Tried to work as a waiter. Well, no, that's a computer that you're accessing and you've got access to credit cards. No. So I couldn't get a job. I ended up, I was, I was bumming money from my dad and my sister. I had a roommate that was taking care of half of the rent on our apartment, our flat. Um, I was on food stamps, government assistance, so that I could eat. So I didn't have any money, couldn't get a job. Uh, it got to the point where um, they tell you when you leave prison that if you have something that you care about, 
and you have a job that you won't recidivate. Well, I didn't have a job. And what I cared about was a cat. I had a pet. And uh, it got to the point where I had the money to feed my cat, and I didn't have enough money to buy toilet paper for the bathroom. So I, I go to the store, and I, I buy the cat some food. And on the way out, they had this kiosk right by the door that had some toilet paper. And that's the first crime I committed when I got out. Uh, I just didn't want to do Internet fraud. And that, that's what I did is I stole, stole toilet paper. And um, what happens is, is about the same time, my wife, Michelle, she finds me at that point. I didn't find her. I ended up moving in with her, didn't get married. Finally, I get a job. The only job I could get was manual labor, pushing a lawnmower, mowing the grass 10 hours a day, five days a week, $400 a week. And I was busting my ass doing that and, and happy to do it. But what happens is, is the job ends. When it gets cold, the grass doesn't grow. So I didn't have a job anymore. And that reason that I commit crime, that, uh, you know, I, I was always the guy that uh, I, I show love by giving expensive gifts, by going overboard. I, I can't really be healthy in a relationship. I have trouble with that. So um, the job ended and I'm like, hey, I have to prove to Michelle that I'm worth it, that I'm, that I'm valuable in this relationship. So I get it in my head. Hey, I can bring food in the house. So I get some stolen credit cards and I start stealing food through the mail order. And then it becomes clothes for the kids, stuff like that. And I get caught. Absolutely, I get caught. And I go back to prison for 10 months. And um, that second turnaround, I go, I go through all these turnarounds. That second turnaround is understanding that Michelle didn't need me for what I could give her. She just wanted me for me the entire time. So I serve out my time. Michelle's waiting on me. I get married to her shortly after I get out of prison. They kill probation so I can touch a computer. But I still can't get a job because I'm the guy that steals everything. And, and even now, even today, I know what it takes for me to go back and commit crime. I know what those triggers are. Well, back then, I knew I would go so far before I did it again. So I ended up reaching out to the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the guy who was responsible for the, a lot of the arrest of the people that I knew. I reached out to the guy on LinkedIn, and I said, hey, I, I respect everything you did. I think you did a great job. I would like to live a legal life. And he, he, within two hours, he responds. He takes me in under his wing. He gives me references, advice, all this other stuff. And, and those, that's what really allowed me to turn my life around. Was that right there? I, from there, um, a lady comes in and hires me as a, as a paid speaker. Microsoft hears about it. They hire me as a consultant. Then AARP comes in, hires me as, as, as an ambassador. And I, 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 I just build this life up, this legal career that I honestly, I don't deserve it. I don't, but I'm damn grateful to have it. And, and I take it really seriously about helping people against the type of person that I used to be. Um, I mean, I really take that shit seriously these days and I work hard to do that. I, I speak across the planet. I consult, I uh, work with law enforcement. I, 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 I train at the, uh, the CISO Academy at Quantico, talk to CISOs there and about cybercrime. I consult with everybody that will listen. I help victims every day. Um, I, I'm trying to, to become that guy that is not remembered as the person who stole everything, but as the person who was able to turn it around. I, I take it really seriously about trying to get to that point. That's, that's a really nice story to hear. And I, I like the fact there's this thread throughout your, your thing there of, it's, you know, there's often the romantic element that, you know, you wanted to marry the girl. So, you, you know, you'd go work for them. You wanted to, you know, do the right thing by you know, your is it your current wife? I'm assuming the last yeah, last lady yeah. you were talking about there, your current wife. So, you know, doing that and then turning yourself around. And I think the thing that listening to your story 
the thing that strikes me is that you're just a, a true entrepreneur. You know, you've got that ability to <laughs> go into the world. You can identify an opportunity. You know, people often think of it as an entrepreneur, someone who just stakes financial capital at risk, but actually you are willing to risk, you know, significant personal freedoms to reap potentially huge rewards in situations. Is is that something you'd identify with as a, a an entrepreneur? You know, I, I think that um, I'm hesitant to say that, but you're 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 technically correct. the The issue is is that uh, I think that that saying that minimizes the harm that I cause to people. Um, you know, I, I had a lot of victims, and I caused a lot of damage to people. And uh, you know, that you and and certainly there people do that. People on the legal side do that every day. Well, I was going to say there's there's plenty of people who would be well classed as entrepreneurs who've done a lot of damage to many many people. But it, you know, it, it doesn't make it it doesn't make it right, no. and um, you know, I I hesitate to to label myself that. I think you're I think you're technically correct. I do, but I hesitate to do that because I don't want to uh, to minimize the damage caused to people at the same time. Yeah, and that that side of things, that kind of mindset of being able to see those things and you know identify opportunities. Obviously, when you were doing this on the illegal side of things, there was personal risk of, of the sort of the getting caught side of things, the, the losing your freedom. Do, do you ever find yourself missing that, that side of things, that risk? Because sometimes that's a, a motivating factor for people. You know, it's, it's interesting that you, that you talk about that. And, and you see most criminals, and I don't really care if it's cybercrime or drug trafficking, bank robbers. I've known them all. But what happens is, is yeah, it's a thrill. It's a thrill ride. It is when you first start and you and you get good at it, man. It is an adrenaline rush, and you and make no mistake, you enjoy the hell out of that. You have a lot of fun. But here's the secret: it becomes a point where it's not fun anymore, and you're still doing it. You know, you're still going out there and you're still slinging those drugs. You're still selling those drugs. You're still doing credit card fraud or tax fraud or whatever cybercrime that is. Or you're still robbing banks, and I've known I've known the experts, and all of them are the same. Yeah, it's fun for a while, but after a while, you know the end's coming, and you still keep on going, and it's not fun anymore. So, do I miss that? No, I, I don't miss that. I don't miss those, uh, you know, the, the being scared of the knock at the door, or when a law enforcement officer pulls in behind you as you're driving. I don't miss that at all anymore. Um, am I still tempted? Yeah, yeah, I still have temptation. <laughs> I absolutely do. Um, I don't act on that temptation though. Typically, if I have a temp- some sort of temptation, I'll uh, I'll do a show about it on my on my show, or I'll write a blog about it, or I'll talk about it on LinkedIn or social media, something like that. I get it out. I'm very good these days about voicing any type of problem that I've got or anything else like that. And I think that um, I've before I became a legal individual. I never really relied on a, a support group, a safety net. And that's one of the primary things that I rely on today is, you know, get it out. And you've got that support group that will help you get through these things. It's absolutely what saved me during the pandemic. I was convinced that I was going to go back into a life of crime during the COVID pandemic. And uh, what saved me was voicing it and people just looking out for me. Like I had the FBI about every two weeks, they'd call me up. Hey, Brett, you doing OK? Let's have lunch today. And they would take care of me. And, and not only that, but everyone in the cybersecurity community that knew me, I would tell them about it and they would constantly check in on me. And that really helped me get through that temptation and the problems I was going through back then. That's fantastic to hear that, you know, that support network has been built up around you and enabled you to do those things. 
Um, we're nearly out of time uh, in the session today, but I just wanted to get your perspective on a, a couple of final things. So as a security researcher, one of the things I often find myself doing is looking at incidents in the news, the headlines, and I just see history repeating itself. So I'm interested to know from your perspective, what things do you think in the security world do you see repeating? What lessons are people just not learning either at an organizational level or at an individual level? Oh, geez. I mean, that's 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 the question of the day. I mean, you know, out of the gate, the uh, the thing is, is that we are reactive on the good side. We are not proactive. Um, and a lot of that boils down to criminals are very open source. They communicate very well with each other. They understand that by educating everyone across the board, that everyone is more profitable at the end of the day. On the good guy side, you know, we've got regulations, privacy concerns. We've got competitive edges that dictates that not a lot of information is shared across the board. And that really puts us at a detriment. So there's that. There's the issue that, you know, we've got thousands of security companies out there. A lot of those security companies try to sell a product based on FUD. They try fear, uncertainty, and doubt in order to sell their, their security wares. The truth of the matter is, is that, you know, yeah, there are zero-day attacks out there. There are unknown vulnerabilities, but 90% of every single attack uses known exploits. It's not the unknown. It's the stuff we know about that we've not done anything about, typically what we've been told about for years that creates that threat landscape that's out there. And that's if, so if you're asking what the problem is, what repeats itself, that's what repeats itself over and over again. Why are we still dealing with outward-facing SMBs. Why is that? Why, why was not Pedia so successful in that specific area? I mean, we've been preaching that for years. Don't, re, don't allow remote access. But still, millions of computers have that wide open. So it's the stuff that we know about that we're not addressing that causes a lot of the problem. You know, cyber criminals are not computer geniuses. You have some. But the 98%, they're not. They're relying on the stuff that we don't address to give them access to those systems. So if, if we could just start doing what we need to do, we could plug a lot of those holes that are out there. The, the problem is, is that we're not doing that. We're not. Uh, so that, that would be my answer on that. We need to uh, share information more. We need to make sure that we've got good cybersecurity hygiene, that we're doing the stuff that we need to do. Absolutely. And it's, it's the advice that, you know, comes up in industry frameworks and all kinds of things out there from, you know, the SANS uh, critical controls to the Australian government's essential eight. They're all saying these things around patching, around keeping things up to date, following best practices. But right. like you say, yet we still seem to be failing to learn these lessons. So right. completely agree with you on that one. And we lie, right? I mean, yeah. you, you get companies like, uh, like LastPass that gets hit with a breach and they minimize that. Oh, it's not as serious as you think. Two months later, well, it might be more serious. <laughs> so you you get this, and it's like, come on, guys, we we need some honesty. We need people doing what they need to do, and and that's the only way we're going to be more secure at the end of the day. When you minimize this, when you just outright lie about some of these things, it's not helping anybody at all. And uh, finally, is there anything else you'd like to get out in the world or tell people what you're up to these days? Yeah, if you guys want to, uh, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn. I have the Brett Johnson Show. We just came back after a four-month hiatus. Uh, so last week was episode 50. Uh, today or tomorrow will be episode 51. Uh, you can find it at thebrettjohnsonshow.com. I'm also on Spotify, on iTunes. I'm coming back on uh, on YouTube as well. 
if you've got any, here's the thing. If you're a company and you've got a paycheck, I'll absolutely charge you for something. But if you're an individual, if you're just looking for some consulting, talking about security, got a problem whatsoever, reach out to me. You may have to chase me down, but reach out to me. I'm more than happy to talk to you and advise you and, and just give you some insight from, you know, from the bad guy side and not only the bad guy side, but I've been on the good guy side for about six or seven years now. And I, I know what I'm talking about on both sides. So, so please feel free to reach out to me. I'm more than happy to, to consult and talk to you about anything you want to talk about. Well, that is absolutely wonderful to hear. And uh, that's all today for this episode of The Adventures of Alice and Bob. Thank you very much to our guest, Brett Johnson, there for sharing his fascinating story. Hoping to see that on Netflix at some point. Definitely going to get the book next year when that's out. So from Beanie Babies to Prison Breaks, I think we've all learned that Brett sees angles and opportunities that others simply don't see. So I'm sure all the listeners are reassured that he's now using these abilities to help others. He's got that support network around him. And as you've just heard from him, he's willing to reach out and help you as an individual with your problems if he can. So thanks again, Brett. As always, thanks to our super producer, Ben, and the team at Beyond Trust who allow this podcast to happen. I'm Jason Smord. This has been The Adventures of Alice and Bob. Thanks for listening to The Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it. 